I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. This hour, you're going to meet several of the people who work here at NPR News. You'll meet reporters, producers, and an editor. All of them work on the stories and interviews you hear here on NPR. First, I want to introduce a couple of members of the morning crew. Each day when I walk into my studio, I wave at the folks across the hall who work on Morning Edition. They are close to ending their shift at that time. Now, if you listen to Morning Edition regularly, you are very familiar with Kathy Werzer's voice. But there is a whole team of people who bring you our regional news. So I want you to listen to my conversation now with the show's uh, two producers. They both started just this year. Gracie Stockton is the lead producer for Morning Edition here at NPR News. Good morning, Gracie. Good morning. Thanks for having us. And Lucas Eleven is an associate producer on the team. Hi, Lucas. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. So, Gracie, first things first, what time do you arrive here at work in the morning? That is a great question. I am generally here, as Kathy likes to say, at oh, dark 30, which is 4 a.m. my time. 4 a.m. And Lucas, are you, do you come a little bit later or when? When I was directing consistently, I'd come in at the s- same time, but now I come in around 6, 6 a.m. And uh, at 4 a.m., uh, what's, what's, what are you seeing? What are the surroundings like that uh, across the, the Twin Cities and in the newsroom? So early in the morning, Gracie. Sure. So one of the things I actually like when I leave my house is I can usually look up if it's clear and it's a beautiful starry sky, but get in, make a pot of coffee, and then go hunker down in a computer, often with a little blanket, for a good five hours. Getting it started. Exactly. I appreciate that. Now, both of you uh, graduated with journalism degrees from the University of Minnesota, and you also both came straight here from another newsroom here in the Twin Cities. You both came from WCCO-TV in Minneapolis. Lucas, you were an assignment editor there. Uh, tell everybody what an assignment editor does. Right. So, I mean, what they would t- tell us when I got hired is that we're the uh, heartbeat or the heart of the newsroom. Like, everything flows through us, all news, all information. Phone reported, calls. Phone complaints. calls. Tons of phone calls Questions. and tons of complaints. <laughs> um, but yeah, basically what I did is I had helped find breaking news, find news stories, pitch stories, and also work logistics. So send reporters and uh, photographers out to different areas if there's a crime or if there's something. I'd listen to police scanners like almost the entire time I was on shift. And so, uh, Gracie, you produce the 6 a.m. newscast for mm-hmm. uh, CCO TV, so a TV newscast early in the morning. And you've also worked as a producer at KSTP TV, another uh, television station here in the Twin Cities. How is the role uh, here at NPR uh, different from working in commercial television as a producer? What's different? My job was also kind of playing assignment editor, coordinating with photographers, talking to PIOs, getting people out to scenes overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, a public information officer. Yeah, PIO. sorry, mm-hmm. public information officers. Um, and it's nice to not have that be on my plate anymore. Mm-hmm. Now we have that opportunity to chase newsmakers. But one of the biggest differences... Chase newsmakers. We don't want to scare the people. <laughs> no. What does that mean? Um, via email or phone. Make some phone calls. Ask people politely to come on our show. Um, but generally, the biggest thing that I see is the difference in pace. I was used to writing an hour of television every morning, often from scratch. And now I'm coming in here and we get to have lengthier conversations, provide a different perspective, and spend seven to eight minutes on a story instead of a 20-second little bit of an anchor talking over video. Um, We break away from the 24-hour news cycle, which dominates television, as well as not focusing as much on crime, Mm -hmm. uh, which is refreshing because we can take more we can we can use more context and provide more background for our listeners. Lucas, uh, give me a couple of highlights of uh, the last few months of Morning Edition. Uh, tell us about some of the interviews uh, you've uh, pursued, uh, mm-hmm. newspapers you've chased, uh, <laughs> uh, topics that you have suggested and set up for Kathy to uh, execute. Sure, I mean one of the th- one of the things that I was really excited about that we ended up getting done was um, I pitched this small town marijuana story. I was like interested in hearing about 
how uh, smaller communities in Minnesota are dealing with the legalization of marijuana because it seems like the metro is the biggest focus around that. You know, right. so many people were and like, our listeners are across the state. Right, exactly. Right. And so I, I ended up, you know, pitching it. Kathy had some ideas. She suggested I reach out to one person. I reached out to that person's law group, called a different person, called that person. And then I ended up landing on the city administrator for Cambridge, Minnesota, and had mm-hmm. him on. And it turned out to be a, a pretty decent conversation. We learned a lot. And I was able to do like an hour and a half of pre-interviews with three different people to make sure that it turned out okay. And so pre-interview and the, mm-hmm. uh, the producers that I work with, pre-interviews are talking to someone over the phone to get an idea of like right. suggested questions and, and what they want to tell us right. as well. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, what it is, is you basically you find somebody who you think might be a right fit and you call them and you have a, just a short chat, usually short. And you just figure out what is probably the best way to interview the person. If we mm-hmm. do pick them, you right. know, you don't want to give them like have them come on and then give them a whole set of questions that like they Surprise have no people. expertise right. around. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and it refines uh, the conversation. Right. Too. Exactly. And also, you know, uh, sometimes a morning edition uh has to cover breaking news, uh, things that just happened overnight or like minutes ago. Tell us about a time um, when you had to, you know, reach out to people very early in the morning, maybe, you know, as folks were sleeping, <laughs> to try to get a guest on the air to talk about something that was happening right mm-hmm. then and there. Um, both of you, uh, Lucas, can you think of an example? Yeah, well, the first time I had to do that was uh, I had to call somebody because there was the BWCA fire, the Boundary Waters fire. I was basically running around, <laughs> reverting back to my assignment editor days, running around the newsroom, like calling a bunch of and emailing a bunch of people and calling and saying like, hey, are you a Available? Are you this or that or that? Right now, right now, right now, we have to get you on in an hour. Like, well, and there was one guy that he was pretty cut and dry, but he was there fighting, and he was like, "Yeah, sure, I can do it in like an hour." And I was like, "Great, we had somebody who was right there battling the fire, talking about the fire that was happening." As a listener, I always wonder, like, how did they get that person? And I, I, like, wow, this is like happening now. How does this happen? And it, it takes running around and just calling people, right? Crazy. Um, honestly, it, it ends up being a lot of texts if it's like before six a.m. and you don't really want to wake someone up and right. it's not super mm-hmm. pressing. Um, it can be emails. It can be relying on other people in the newsroom, whether that be your editor, Andrew. Um, but it's just being willing to not stop at one conversation mm-hmm. and try and have multiple. And then the benefit is there, too. If someone doesn't get back to you until after the show, you can pass that information along to someone else in the newsroom. And it also right. just makes what we're doing more collaborative. Tag team because we're a 24-hour operation. Right. Exactly. Recently, we had the um, the obit about um, Henry Boucher. Yep. So when someone... Th- dies and right. then it's a news story right so then what happens right and so that was when you were you were texting and emailing like six yeah i think people. i reached out to four <laughs> to six people and remind us who he who he was henry boucher was a hockey legend native american advocate mm-hmm. who played for the red wings and the minnesota north stars uh what are some other highlights the last couple of months so uh, great breaking news obviously mm-hmm. uh but obviously there's sometimes some topics that you see, and you're like, we should do more on that. So Gracie, something that stands out to you that you're proud of that you worked on. Mm, One of the things that I worked on recently was a story with a University of Minnesota medical student who had been working behind the front lines as a combat medic in Ukraine, Mm. which was a pretty special situation. Um, And we ended up going back and forth a few times, having some phone calls. He worked on getting some interviews with folks in Ukrainian because that's where he's originally from, Mm -hmm. Um, and pictures and videos and kind of working together on that, shaping that into an interview that we can have with Kathy, and then going back and editing that and building in some of that sound directly from him to really, again, build on that intimacy and try and take our listeners 
to that scene. And con- connecting Minnesotans to places around the world. When right. Big stories. Exactly. Right. And then mm-hmm. one of the things that came about, too, is I had a different doctor reach out to me a month later and say, hey, I heard that story. Um, if it's all right, I would love to connect with Sergey because I want to go do the same thing. Wow. And Impact. with his permission, we did. Right. Yes. And that and that's what's really beautiful is mm-hmm. seeing that follow through. Even if it isn't immediate, it's building connections across Minnesota and even across mm-hmm. the world in this case. Right. Uh, Lucas, I know much of your workday is spent in the control room and making phone calls, but you do get out the building. Right. Uh, you get get out sometimes uh, in the community with your recording gear. You recently had a piece on uh, tied to Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. Tell us how that came about and why did you want to put that together and get it on the air? So, I mean, I'm, I'm Jewish, and so I celebrate Rosh Hashanah every year. And so I wanted to do a postcard, an audio postcard, which is just we go in to an environment or a setting and we just capture that setting. Originally, it was going to be like maybe an, an overview. I wanted to do something with greater Minnesota, like get a family out in greater Minnesota because, you know, I, I don't hear a lot about Jewish families in greater Minnesota. Um, and then uh, we kind of went down to like, maybe we should do like apple picking because we eat apples and honey on Rosh Hashanah. And then we got down to where I was <laughs> emailing like six different uh, synagogues and different youth groups. And a rabbi was like, I have like maybe a baker that you could talk to. And I was like, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> he didn't get back to me on the baker. But I ended up contacting Cecil's Deli in St. Paul and was like, hey, do you have anybody? And it just so happened that one of the granddaughters was there that day and was like, you can just come to my kitchen. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so that's what I did. I went to her kitchen and I recorded a, a little postcard. So I think as a listener to Public Radio, one of the things I appreciate is is how you are able to to learn about different cultures, different people, to go inside spaces that you would otherwise not have any access to. So right. that's, is that part of why you enjoy the work that you do? Well, I mean, I just love getting out to meet people, especially for storytelling. One of the biggest reasons why I got into journalism was so that I could get to meet people and get their story heard by other people. You know, if somebody Spread has something, yeah, right? <laughs> if somebody has something interesting, it's, it's nice for other people to be able to hear how interesting that story is. And uh, Gracie, a little known fact that was shared with me prior to this interview, as a high school senior, you were accepted into the University of Minnesota's program in biomedical engineering. That is true. And now you're working in journalism. So what happened? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a little bit of a complex answer. Um, So I have loved storytelling, music, theater my entire life. I've been performing in various capacities since I was eight years old. And I really enjoyed that. But I was kind of told where I grew up that I probably wouldn't be successful if I wasn't in a STEM career. And so I ended up trying to pursue that. That was where I I applied for biology or different types of uh, engineering in health fields uh, for all the colleges I applied to. And then that spring of my senior year, I got nominated for a um, high school musical theater award through Broadway in Chicago. And that kind of gave me the moment where I said, hmm, maybe there is an opportunity that I could pursue something more artistic, more about mm-hmm. storytelling that aligns better with what I want to do. And so I made that switch. And ultimately, I double majored in journalism and theater and got a mm-hmm. minor in Russian. Uh, I'm glad you made that decision. I'm glad that you're here. And, <laughs> Thank you. and Lucas, how did you uh, get into journalism? You're still early in your career as I well. I am, yeah. I'm very young. <laughs> we both are very young. We both but, are, yeah. But, um, yeah, I actually, I was the opinions editor for my school journalism paper in high, oh. school, in high school. Oh, you had opinions in I high had, school. I still have them, uh-huh. <laughs> but I keep them mostly quiet <laughs> okay. now. No, but I, I, had a, I, had a, I was an opinions editor, and I remember <laughs> I was sitting with some friends on a couch that we had in the, in the newsroom that we had there. And I remember just being like, oh, I love this class. I wish I could do it for like seven hours out of the day, all, all of my classes. And my journalism advisor walked in and she was like, that's 
just a career in journalism. And I was like, oh, so now I know what I'm going to major in. Well, uh, Gracie and Lucas, I, I love having this opportunity to get to know you both better. And I'm so glad that you're both here in our newsroom. You bring um, so much uh, value to the work that we do. So thank you for your time and for getting up early and coming in every day. <laughs> <laughs> we have fun doing it. Yeah. We have fun together. It's 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 Which better to do it with somebody else yes, than alone. <laughs> the camaraderie, it's, it's very clear. Gracie Stockton is the lead producer for Morning Edition here at NPR News. And Lucas Levin is an associate producer on the Morning Edition team. Thank you so much, guys. We'll continue our conversation uh, with colleagues here at NPR in a few minutes. Next, we will meet Kyra Miles, our new early childhood education reporter. Today, we're getting to know some of the new reporters and producers here at NPR News. And we just went behind the scenes a little bit with the producers on Morning Edition. Now, I want to introduce you to one of our new reporters. This is reporter Kyra Miles. Kyra started in June as the early childhood education reporter here at NPR News. We're so glad we have somebody joining our education team. Now, she comes to us from public radio station WBHM in Birmingham, Alabama, where she covered K-3. 12 education. Good morning, Kyra. Good morning. Do you like the way I said put, Alabama? I was say you put a little twang on it. <laughs> I had to. We are so happy you moved up here to Minnesota. How's it going? Are you enjoying the state so far? Yeah, so far so good. You know, I moved up here during the summer, so I haven't had a mm-hmm. winter yet. So. We're going to have fun. We're going to make sure you're warm. You'll be fine. Uh, you worked in uh, Birmingham uh, almost two years, um, and uh, you made quite an impression in that state. The Alabama Broadcasters Association named you the Radio Reporter of the Year in large markets. Congratulations. So what were some of the stories uh, that you did that uh, earned you that recognition there when you were covering education? Um, Some highlights definitely include um, my continuing coverage on LGBTQ issues that came up in the last couple of years in the state um, and how they affected students and teachers. Um, I talked with a lot of students and a lot of teachers about um, how they were feeling and what they were doing to try to kind of combat those restrictive um, policies that had passed in the state. And I'm proud of it because I think a lot of people think of the South as unwelcoming to LGBTQ students. And while there's definitely politics in the state that are um, concerning and devastating, um, there are communities of people um, and students working hard to to get things done. Um, I also did some reporting on community gun violence and how that's mm. affecting teens in Birmingham. Um, so not, um, you know, violence within the school, but violence within their community um, that they, they see every day. Yeah, Right. Mm-hmm. And these are issues that we have here, too, in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. So I know uh, it, it's very important to you to talk with students and not just about them. Um, what did you hear directly from students that you talked to? I mean, you know, the students are seeing or hearing, you know, guns in their communities almost every day. Um, you know, I talked to students who had lost classmates, like, I think one student lost a classmate every year and he was a senior um, and he talked about how he just, yeah, they, they have a club at their school um, where they encourage nonviolence and um, they encourage their peers to talk about what they've been going through so that they don't carry it with them. Uh, here in Minnesota, you're going to be focusing or you have been reporting on much younger children. Um, how are you approaching covering early childhood education? Well, you know, I do miss talking to high schoolers for sure, but I think I'm approaching it. 
um, in the same way that I was before by reporting through a lens of equity and solutions and highlighting stories of marginalized communities across demographics, whether that's race, class, gender, sexuality, et cetera. Um, you know, last year was a big year for early childhood education wins for Minnesota. So I came at a great time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm excited to document um, those policy changes and also hold the lawmakers accountable to see uh, you know, how these policies are implemented across the state. Um, I've been going to child care centers to talk with the providers and talk with parents and families um, and trying to get a good sense of what's going on in Minnesota. So um, that's where I'm starting. <laughs> you are actually a native of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. I'm a native of Virginia. So we're, we're kind of neighbors there. Uh, you graduated with their degree in journalism and global studies from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Uh, and this is why you wear a lot of light blue, some Carolina blue. I see a little bit in your wardrobe. <laughs> uh, but I also know you work for a, a local radio station in Chapel Hill affiliated with CBS News. What got you interested in radio and podcasting in particular uh, as a young person? Well, uh, I knew I wanted to do journalism when I got into college. And so I knew the J school at UNC Chapel Hill um, had a good reputation, um, but mm-hmm. I didn't come in knowing exactly what I wanted to do with journalism. So I really did a little bit of everything. I did print for a second. I did photojournalism for a second. I did TV for a second. <laughs> I, I, I did I did it all. Um, and then my sophomore year, um, I took my first audio journalism class. And I think that was that was it. Yeah, I realized how much I enjoyed broadcast journalism, but really being able to um, create stories through sound uh, alone and and um, the not joy worry about the hair it. and the makeup and the TV camera on you. <laughs> right, 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 right. I think it's a really an intimate medium of journalism, um, not just because, you know, you get to hear people's emotions um, when you're listening to them, but as a reporter, you know, if you're talking to someone and all you have is a microphone between you, you're able to really connect and have a conversation that you might not be able to do if you have a camera as well. So tell me about a story that you've worked on uh, here recently um, and how you were able to use sound um, to bring people into the scene, sound, sounds from the environment. Yeah. So I did a story about um, nature-based learning and nature-based preschools and and I went to Dodge Nature Preschool. Um, and in that story, I had a really fun time using sound um, because there was a really great ambient from like the chickens on the grounds and the kids running around and singing and, you know, mm. tasting um, uh, and foraging plants um, on the grounds <laughs> of the preschool. Um, and so I just think it, it's it's really impactful to be able to use sound in that way. So it's not just, you know, you're hearing people talking back and forth the whole time, but you're really able to create a scene and create, um, you know, emotions and feelings. You're bringing your listeners to the scene, mm-hmm. right? That's what, what what we do. Your story about Dodge uh, Nature Preschool um, talked about why interest has been growing in outdoor and, and nature education for young children. Uh, what did you find out in that report? Well, um, the pandemic kind of forced people outside. Um, mm-hmm. So when um, schools were closing and um, people were concerned about, obviously, their health and the health of their children, um, nature-based preschools provided a unique opportunity to be able to have school outside and have uh, – and time outside, as many people know, is really good for kids, not just for playing, um, mm-hmm. but for educational development because it's a space mm-hmm. where they're able to really explore their senses and teachers are able to use animals and plants and the weather to add to that learning. And it's also become a little bit more accessible over the years. So um, there's always been a gap, um, opportunity gap between um, Black students and their white counterparts. And that's true, too, in in early childhood education. Um, but now um, more people are able to have access to nature-based learning. And so I think that's part of the reason why it's gotten more popular over the years. Uh, you have spent time outside the United States. You, you've traveled quite a, 
a bit. Very impressive. Uh, you studied on a Fulbright scholarship in Berlin, looking at journalism uh, in another country. You minored in Korean and studied in South Korea. How did these experiences uh, shape you as a person and as a reporter, do you think? I mean, I think they just really, they really broaden my worldview. I, I try to be a good global citizen. And to me, that means being informed and talking to people with different experiences than me mm-hmm. um, when I can. Um, and these experiences really allowed me to open my mind to issues and, and histories that I didn't know much about. I mean, in Berlin, we were able to talk to German journalists and really learn how different history of a country shapes the way journalism looks. I really value the time that I spent abroad, and I hope to continue traveling. Yes, you were you were in Japan recently. Yeah, I was in Japan last month. That was just for fun, but right. <laughs> which is great. Uh, and you, I've heard you talk about K dramas. You like to watch those? <laughs> I do. I do like to watch those mainly for fun. I could use it to study, but I, I. It's, sometimes it's just hard. So, <laughs> so the language, you're, you're working on the language. Yeah, I mean, I minored in Korean. Um, but, you know, when you learn a second language, if you don't use it, you lose right, it. And right. so I don't have a lot of time to really practice. But uh, another uh, little known fact that you know that I'm just a- a- absolutely bonkers about <laughs> is that you can crochet, but like really, really well. You made a whole you crocheted a whole outfit that you showed me. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, can I squeeze into that? Can you add like a few more <laughs> inches so that I can wear this outfit? How did you pick up crocheting? It was a pandemic hobby. I picked it, I picked it up during lockdown um, and I just did it every single day because there was really nothing else to do. So I want to pick it up again. I haven't really been able to crochet much since I got here. But you can alter that outfit so I, I, and expand it so I can wear it. I, I have a lot of yarn. so <laughs> I could. You're going to need it. You're going to need it for me. Uh, and tell me about some of the stories that you're working on now that you're looking forward to, um, to sharing with our listeners because uh, we're in a new school year now. Yeah, well, what's exciting about my beat is that there's not a lot of people that have early childhood education as their specific beat, like in the country, let alone in Minnesota. Um, so I'm excited to work on some explainer pieces, um, not only just so that I can learn, but I think so that also other people can learn as well. So about the funding model for early childhood education, the new state agency that was created last legislative session, the Department of Children, Youth and Families. Um, and I'm Hold also up. we have a new state agency. Yeah, the new state agency. It's actually um, taking programs from four other state agencies. And putting them into one so that everything early childhood early care and learning is all together under one state agency it's going to make it easier for child care providers to be able to do what they need to do it's going to be easier um to get funding for different programs because it's not mm-hmm. all spread across everywhere um so i'm going to be continuing to watch to see how that state agency comes into effect it's not going to be fully implemented until 2025 so that sounds um, a lot more efficient yes that's yeah. the idea mm-hmm. it's supposed to be so um, but I'm also interested in um, doing some stories about indigenous early education and ways that um, um, people are trying to get indigenous culture and history into the early ed classrooms. And how do people uh, send you story ideas that they would like to uh, support your reporting in this early uh, childhood education beat? How do we get in touch with you? Yes, um, you can get in touch with me by sending an email to K Miles. That's K M I L E S at mpr.org. I'm really excited to hear, especially from families um, and new parents. So. Thank you, Kyra. Welcome to Minnesota. We're glad you're here at NPR News. Thank you. We've been talking with Kyra Miles, who started in June as the new early childhood education reporter here at NPR. And I'll continue my conversations with colleagues here at NPR News in a few minutes. Up next is editor Leah Lim and reporter Melissa Olson, who are starting the new Native News Initiative. We'll learn all about that. (music) 
We are so excited that NPR News is launching a Native News Initiative. Now, this is an effort to tell stories about and with Minnesota's Indigenous communities. And here with me right now, our new Native News reporting team. We have senior editor Leah Lim and reporter Melissa Olson. Good morning. Good morning. Hi. Hi. And Leah, thank you for coming down from your home in Grand Rapids. Mm -hmm. Uh, Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Buju, Angela. How's it going? I'm Leah Lem. Uh, Leah Lem, Indigenous Cause, Windagukwe Indigu, Mizizaga Igunning Indunjaba. My name is Windagukwe, and I'm a citizen of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe. Welcome. And or I should say welcome back because you actually started your new role a little more than a month ago, but it's your second stint at NPR, I'm told. You worked here for seven years on the broadcast operations side, so the engineering side. And then you left to become an independent podcast and radio producer, independent, as well as uh, a host focusing on telling Native stories. So what's it like being back? Oh, it's so great. I recognize so many people and folks are just really kind. And Melissa, (laughs) you've also been a freelance journalist. You have contributed many stories about Native issues uh, to NPR's North Star Journey Project. Thank you for that. And uh, you've worked for other media as well, including KFAI Community Radio in Minneapolis. Would you like to introduce yourself, Melissa? Hi, yes. um, Melissa Olson, Nina Indigenous on a Indigo. Um, my name is Melissa Olson. I am a proud citizen of the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe. I live here in the Twin Cities. And yes, I have happily been in community journalism for some years. And now you're full time with us here at NPR News, situated in a cubicle near me. So (laughs) we've had a chance to get to know each other. What is it like for you to be here in this new role? Well, I get to have all the fun because I sit near you. (laughs) It's great. It's, um, it's new. There's more space here to to do the kinds of reporting that I think we're hoping to do. So I'm really looking forward to it. Right. Now, I know the Native News Initiative is is still just getting off the ground. Uh, It's early days for for both of you. Uh, But Leah, tell us more about what the initiative is and some of your vision for it. Yeah, I think it's really simple. So NPR's mission is creating the future of public media by amplifying voices to inform, include, and inspire. And really, in order to satisfy that mission, satisfy NPR's mission, we need to include Native voices and make Native voices just a big, fun, vibrant part of NPR's coverage. So really getting out there, informing, including, and inspiring with Native voices as a part of it. I mentioned that you worked um, in the operations side here at NPR News before. Uh, What inspired you to shift from engineering to the journalism side? Yeah, so a big part of my job at NPR years ago was monitoring our stations, monitoring our content to make sure everything was quality checked and we were, you know, on the air. And (laughs) while I was doing that, I just wasn't hearing voices from my community. I wasn't hearing voices like those in my family. Um, Just brilliant, fun voices, too, that I thought would really benefit NPR in Minnesota to hear. And so, you know, it got me thinking about how how invested in media are communities and people when 
media doesn't invest in them. In a sense, I was taking a first step to invest my time, my efforts, my gifts in my own community and other Native communities around Minnesota to share their to share their stories and, in a sense, raising the volume and intensity of Native voices, thus amplifying. So what kinds of stories are you excited about telling? Oh, my gosh. I well, everything really. But for me personally, I like uncovering stories that you'd otherwise not hear. So I know there are great big names. There are great people doing things, you know, famous people, famous natives. This person got an award. This oh, person yeah. is, is, you know, giving a speech. Mm-hmm. We're going beyond that. What I love are those people who are doing the quiet work, mm. the quiet cultural work, or the up and coming leaders, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Melissa, how did you get interested in journalism? I understand back in the early 2000s, you were in in an academic phase. You were working on a PhD in American studies. Yeah, that's right. I, you know, did not finish my program. But one of the things it did for me was give me sort of the research tools um, that I needed to, you know, research things that I cared about, things that I wanted to know more about. Um, And one of those things in around um, 2010, 2011 was just researching more of my own family history, my mom's history, Mm -hmm. which, um, you know, culminated in a larger project and part of that project happened at KFAI. So you've done research and created a documentary about what's sometimes called forced adoption. What happened to Native communities through adoption policies? And and why is this such an important story for you to tell? Yeah. So, you know, why it's such an important story for me to tell is that my mom was one of those people, right? Mm -hmm. And when I was in school, there was so little said, even in some of the places where you might expect some more of that research to exist. It didn't... um, you know, there there wasn't a lot of of, of it wasn't uh, documented. It wasn't documented, and we made a fifty two minute documentary. Myself, um, my mom, but several other women and their moms, and we were able to sort of tell that story in a way that we um, felt was important to us. Going off of what Melissa was just talking about about her being able to tell the story of her own family, mm-hmm. that is really the crux. You know, what is the right way to tell a story? It changes. It depends on the person. But if we are in charge of how we present ourselves, that goes a long way in um, empowering our voices. So, I mean, there are so many ways that mainstream media can get it wrong. And oftentimes, it's the idea that Native communities, Native people are in the past are a part of only history instead of on this uh, continuum and Mm -hmm. present day uh, vibrant, thriving societies in many cases. And so many people have questions too. Like so many people I think in our audience uh, want to understand and learn more. Yeah. And we have so much to offer. That's, Mm -hmm. that's a big part is like when our communities work together, we become stronger So, um, Leah, you were already out in the field um, with your reporting gear last month, uh, working on a story for NPR. And what is it about? So I've actually never been wild racing. And that's a big cultural uh, event uh, at the end of the summers. It's interesting for me to hear someone use the word rice as a verb. Yep. (laughs) Trust me, when I write it down, like, uh, in a Word document or something, it always it gets corrected. It. Mm-hmm. 
Harvesting right. wild rice. Right. Yep. So oftentimes just say ricing. So I went out in a canoe with a great host, Pat Cruz, Mr. Pat Cruz. And um, I also went back and learned how to process wild rice. And Are so- there pictures and video? There is video, there's audio, and there's photo that are that will be coming out. And so I'm, I took the opportunity to reconnect to culture uh, by learning how to rice and exploring the big uh, obstacles that are coming up, environmental mm-hmm. and just um, interest from the next generations. And things like that. So, and Melissa, I remember one of the first stories that you did for um, NPR's North Star Journey series was about land in northern Minnesota that the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe got back from the federal government. Uh, briefly, what happened there, and and what about that story surprised you? So, Leech Lake was petitioning um, the federal government to have land returned to them, land that had been illegally transferred away from the community in the uh, earlier part of the the twentieth century, and. What I was told by, you know, officials at Leech Lake, elected leaders there was that, you know, they had this relationship with a a county with whom they share geography. And it was that relationship um, that helped make this land back opportunity possible. And so I went to talk to folks in the county commission um, in Cass County, and they said, oh, yeah, we have this relationship with Leech Lake. And it you know, when it came to this issue of they're getting land back, we just said that's really not our business. That's a nation to nation issue. We fully support um, Leech Lake sovereignty, and there are partners in other ways. But that was an unexpected turn. I didn't expect to necessarily know that it was this sort of um, newfound relationship between the county government and tribal government that that made. Um, some of that possible. So those are the kinds of relationships that I think are really interesting, and they are emerging. You know, they're important for people to know about. Uh, I know you're working on a lot of different story ideas right now, but give us a sense of some of what we may see from you um, in the in the months to come. Oh, man, I have this laundry list. So I just came from a, a really important event in the community that was held in Minneapolis, but hosted by a national um, organization. And it was really an honoring for boarding school survivors. And so I was, I was happy to be able to attend that. You know, I hope people get a chance to read that story and reflect on what's what's happening in the community with this kind of um, reclamation and this kind of recovery that's happening all the time. Um, those are important stories. I am, you know, I'm a longtime resident here of Minneapolis, and I'm also really excited about um following and covering and reporting on some of those public safety issues that are so important in Minneapolis right now. You know, the the recent report by the DOJ and, you know, now going forward, the consent decree process. And Native people, you know, were named explicitly in the report that the DOJ issued. Um, Black and Native people are experiencing police violence. So that's one of the stories that I feel it's super important to sort of maintain relationships on the ground. So as, you know, um, data gets released as um, we start to learn more about what the consent decree process will look like. We hear some of those voices. And, uh, and Leah, uh, I know that you perform as a vocalist and you pick some music to share with us uh, today. Tell us about it. Yes, this is a song called Rebeginning. And I actually composed this for the Cedar Commissions with the Cedar Cultural Center about five years ago. And these lyrics focus on how we are a part 
of the very DNA of this land that we're on and can never be removed. That was my conversation with senior editor Leah Lim with NPR's Native News Initiative. Leah is a woman of many talents. She has a Master's of Fine Arts in Poetry from the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and a professional diploma in music production and engineering from Berklee College of Music in Boston. Her undergraduate degree from MIT is in economics. You also heard me talking with NPR reporter Melissa Olson with the Native News Initiative. Melissa just earned a master's degree in art and public policy from NYU. Melissa majored in English and American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota and did graduate work in American Studies. We're so fortunate to have them on our news staff. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.